Hey, so tonight we have um, my good friend, Bruxy. Uh, who's going to be sharing tonight. And so uh, I know I've been blessed by Bruxy's ministry over many years. I've worked at the Meeting House for, uh, I've been a pastor of the Meeting House for I think almost eight years now, believe it or not, in a couple of different roles. Before this current role here in London, I was uh, working kind of in our Oakville offices overseeing the youth ministry across uh, our sites. And so we're a multi, if you don't know anything about the Meeting House, we're a multi-site church of uh, 18 locations around the province. And so we've got these pockets of local communities all over the place. And so, uh, yeah, so it's cool. It's cool to be a part of this movement. And uh, God's used Brooks in some really incredible ways to shape uh, so many people's hearts and lives. And uh, one thing I love about Bruxy is just his heart and his passion to help us be focused on Jesus. And so I think that is what uh, I'm blessed by, and I know you will be tonight, too. So why don't we welcome Bruxy as he comes and shares tonight. Hi, friends. I should say family. Yesterday when I was here, I felt like such a welcomed guest. Tonight, I feel like I'm home. It's just nice, nice to be with family. So good. And our churches are very different. How many of you are Impact Church people? Make some noise. Fantastic. Thank you for welcoming us into your home and just being letting us discover extended family together. That's so good. How many of you are meeting house people? I want to tell the rest of you that it's very rowdy for the meeting house. Thank you, meeting housers, for stepping up your game, your charisma game. Uh, and then how many of you are in the category of neither, I, but I am here. How many are you in that category? Well, we welcome you. That is so good that you're here. Well, we have um, been talking about a number of different things between Greg's sessions and mine, uh, but they all come down to Jesus. Uh, and, and as Phil said, we have more in common than we have that divides us. But even if everything about us was different and we only had one thing in common, if that one thing is Jesus, that's enough. And that's more powerful than everything else that could potentially divide us. And so we've been putting the focus on Jesus as we talk about his relationship to scripture and to, to violence and to the kingdom. And while my contribution has been to just walk us through different ways of thinking about the gospel, the good news message of Jesus, and how we can both absorb that into our own lives and then communicate it to others. And so we're just going to continue that. And also, as I mentioned before, if, you, if I raise questions or you want to continue the dialogue, turn this monologue into dialogue, then get into touch with a weird name like Bruxy, I'm pretty easy to find on pretty much every form of social media, so I would be happy to hear from you. So we've been talking about the gospel in 30 words, the gospel in 30 words, and we phrased it this way, Jesus is God with us, come to show us God's love, save us from sin, set up God's kingdom, and shut down religion so we can share in God's life. And we talked about, and I'm going to skip a bunch of slides for the folks who are doing the slides for me tonight. We'll just keep you on your toes because, as usual, I come with three hours worth of material and we're going to get through it in about three hours. No, we'll get through it so much quicker. It's going to be amazing, but you'll have to stay on your toes. So we're, we've uh, talked about this gospel in 30 words, and we talked about how different aspects of the gospel connects with fundamental human needs, like our need for courage in a world that is motivated by fear, our need for a sense of value in a world that is... Um, uh, that often uh, manipulates our insecurities in order to sell us more product, uh, just to have a sense of esteem, and then our, our need for forgiveness uh, in a world that, where we, we grow up often with latent shame as our subconscious motivator. Uh, we talked about how the kingdom meets our need for purpose and, and a sense of place and peace. And now for this last session, we're going to talk about what it means to shut down religion so that we can share in God's life. And when we shut down, when we first talk about shutting down religion, which we'll talk about for the first 20 minutes, and then we'll spend 20 minutes on the last point, uh, this, this concept of uh, the end of religion really offers us the spiritual rest that our souls are hungry for. We can now get off the treadmill of PBA. I think many of us suffer from PBA. PBA, performance-based acceptance, right? 
a performance-based acceptance, and somehow re- religion preys on that. It, 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 it gets its life from our insecurity and our need, our feeling that we have to perform well in order to be accepted. And the, the, the new covenant is, just brings this beautiful end to that. To, to help illustrate my point, to get the conversation started, I want us to play a game together. It's everyone's favorite Christian TV game show, Follow or Forget. You ready to play? All right, studio audience, this is how we play this game. I am going to read you a number of different commands of Scripture, and you simply have to shout out, Follow or Forget. Do we follow it or do we forget it? Because this will help answer the question. Do you follow the Bible? Hmm. Most Christians, when asked, do you follow the Bible, will say something like, yes. I say, do you? If so, I'd like to give you some commands in the Bible and see if you follow them. Or do you follow the Bible the way we should follow John the Baptist who says, thanks for looking at me, but now let me point out Jesus. You see, The Bible plays the role of one who points to Christ. The Bible doesn't say, follow me. Jesus says, follow me, right? We go to the Bible to meet Jesus, but we follow Jesus. We are followers of Jesus. Uh, And and so the, the, the Bible plays the role of the star of Bethlehem. It leads us to Jesus, but then we follow Jesus. And you say, but Bruxy, you gotta read the Bible to follow Jesus, absolutely. So we are people who have our noses in the Bible, who care about scripture, who memorize and study scripture, but not so that we can follow scripture. Scripture didn't die on the cross for your sins. We study, meditate, learn scripture so we can follow Jesus. Otherwise, you get into a very weird conundrum with Scripture when you say, well, I just followed the Bible. When I grew up, I heard the Bible says that that settles it. I believe it. Let's do it. Amen. Except it doesn't work. You can't just say, I read it in the Bible, so I'm going to follow. We're going to play our game. Follow or forget. First of all, Leviticus 19 starts with be holy because I, the Lord God, am holy. Be holy. Follow or forget. I think follow. I think that's pretty good. How about this? Honor your father and your mother. Follow? Yeah, we'll follow that. Um, Do not steal. Good. Do not lie. Okay, good. That's getting the follow. You're not being much of a studio audience. I want more pizzazz. Especially you impact people. Let's give it. Come on. Set an example. How about this? Okay, good, good. How about this one? Do not curse a deaf person. Follow, which I think is kind of self-explanatory. That just makes sense to me. Do not curse a deaf person because, well, after all, they're deaf. They won't hear you. Why? That would be a wasted curse, frankly. That would be poor curse stewardship as far as I'm concerned. How about this? Uh, <laughs> that's weird. Okay. Um, re- here's another one. Uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Good. That's in Leviticus 19. How about this? Do not make different kinds of animals. Uh, I... I don't know. Okay, we'll move on. Um, do not plant your field with two kinds of seeds. We forget. We fa- I don't know. I'm not a farmer, so I don't care. Uh, how about this? Do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. We'll say forget. We'll say too late. That's in the category of too late. Look, what I, so that would be strange, wouldn't it, if we say I follow the Bible? So what would we do here just to figure out who the holy people are? Would we double check your clothing tags as you come in and say, excuse me, ma'am, if that is a cotton blouse or if that is wool, you're doing fine. But a polyester blend, I'm sorry, we'll stone you <laughs> right after the service out in the foyer. In the fellowship hall, we're having our weekly stonings for those people who, no, that wouldn't work out. But how about this one? Do not eat meat with the blood still in it. How rare do you like your meat? Follow or forget? We don't know. Okay, here's my favorite. Here we go, here we go, here we go. Verse 27. If you're a man, do not cut your hair on the sides or trim your beard. I think some of us in this room are much more holy than the rest of you. <laughs> and then, of course, Leviticus 19:28, which says, "Do not get a tattoo." Follow, and, well, if you're a parent of a teenager, you say follow. Right? But if you're someone who wants a tattoo, you say forget. Which is really interesting because uh, I. Well, no, I'm not going to say more about that. That's enough. How about? Well, 
if, if we were to push forward to Leviticus 21, Leviticus 21 describes who has qualification to actually approach the throne in worship, who has a qualification to approach God in worship. And it says anyone who has a defect in their body is not allowed to approach the throne. Would you say follow or forget? Yeah. Forget, but this is scripture. It says you can't come if there's something wrong with you. you so do you follow the Bible? No, you read the Bible, study the Bible, learn the Bible, cherish the Bible so you can Follow Jesus. Again, if you were to follow Leviticus 21, it says you cannot approach God in worship if you are blind or lame. I remember when I was a kid, I read that. I thought that meant you had a bad sense of humor. Oh, he's so lame. And then what about if you're disfigured or if you are deformed in any way? Oh, how about this? If you have a crippled foot or hand, you cannot worship. Verse 20 says you can't worship if you are a hunchback. How's your posture? Good, good. Now, and I like this. If the next one says, if you're a hunchback or a dwarf, I don't know, how, old, how tall does that make you? You have to be this tall to ride the ride when it comes to worshiping Yahweh, I'm not sure. And then lastly, if you have an eye defect. Who's wearing glasses? How dare you participate in worship this evening? Wait, 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 let me ask another question. Who's wearing contacts? Oh, how double dog dare you? for not only approaching the throne in worship with an eye defect, but then using deception to cover it up. <laughs> oh, there is one last one. You're not allowed to uh, serve God as a priest in any form of ministry if you have, it says, damaged testicles. All right, so this is the word of the Lord, and it's important <laughs> that we stay biblical. <laughs> I do find myself wondering, how did they monitor these things? Was it like turn to the right and cough? All right, you may enter, or is it a matter of self-reporting? It's probably self-reporting. Fred, I haven't seen you at temple worship recently. Well, well, George. <laughs> Ever since that unfortunate testicle-crushing accident, I just haven't felt worthy. Do you follow the Bible? We follow Jesus. Jesus, see, here's the thing. If you don't allow Jesus to be your guide, because it seems like this is God's guidebook, but it seems like we need a guide to help us figure out how to use God's guidebook. If Jesus is not our guide, we'll use this wrong. And here's what's even more dangerous is that in the hands of a skilled teacher, in the hands of whether it's Carl or it's Greg or it's myself or it's any other person who knows their scriptures and has the ability to communicate, you can make this book say anything you want it to say. There's so much in there. You can use this book to justify any kind of violence, any kind of judgment, any kind of separatist, any kind of cultic mentality that you want if the leader is skilled enough. And so this is, this is why we need in our churches to rally around Jesus again and again and to say, Jesus, ultimately be our teacher and may our pastors lead us to Jesus as scripture leads us to Jesus. The new covenant then puts Jesus front and center and helps us, helps us be freed from the old way of the law. This, if we were to follow the way of the law, it would lead to some pretty strange places for us. Jesus has freed us up from this. There is this uh, movie called The Girl with All the Gifts. I don't know if you've seen it. We have a picture, I think the next picture, The Girl with All the Gifts. It's, it's everyone's favorite zombie movie uh, from a couple of years ago. And in this movie, they have a new generation of zombies. They're children zombies. But they're not like the typical uh, zombie. They are fully lucid and fully themselves, but they have been infected with the zombie virus, which does mean, aside from being sweet, gentle, and beautiful children, occasionally they do want to eat somebody. And this presents a bit a problem. And so the government's doing experiments, trying to figure out what's causing this. Is there a cure? In the meantime, they feel they need to raise the children properly, at least give them an education. So the children who are technically zombies but are still fully themselves are kept in cells away from, uh, from anyone else. And then they're brought out for class uh, every day where they are strapped into their chairs and they're allowed to do some, some writing and some learning, and then they're taken back to their cells because they're both children, but they're infected children who could do great damage. And as I'm watching this movie, I'm thinking, this is the old 
covenant. The old covenant says, yes, you're infected with sin. There is a virus that could cause you, an image bearer of God, a beautiful, innocent, a loving creature who has been infected with a virus that could cause you to do maximum damage to yourself and to others. And it's horrible. I mean, that's what makes Genesis chapter three in the fall so sad. It's not just because we're sinners, it's because we were made to be something better than that. Right, as I've said earlier, Genesis chapter three, only has, it's only tragic if you understand Genesis one and two. Uh, when a worm crawls through the dirt, it's not tragic. We don't say, oh no, that worm is just acting so worm-like. Just in the dirt, you know, get up and fly, worm. You were made for better than this. No, when a worm crawls through the dirt, that's not tragic. That just is, is what it is, because that's what a worm is. But when humans act like worms, when we act like zombies, when we act vile, when we act like sinners, it is tragic because we were made for something so much better than this. The new covenant doesn't only carry us forward. It helps us recapture who we were made to be in the first place. It's, it's not, see, the old covenant said, uh, the old covenant didn't offer a cure for the disease. There was no cure. There were just laws that kept, it minimized the damage. That's what the old covenant did. It strapped us down in ways that somehow minimized the damage we would do to ourselves and others, but it never offered the cure. The new covenant, well, Jesus says in Luke 2.20, or 20, sorry, 22.20, Jesus says, it's at the Last Supper. You know the scene at the Last Supper? And he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. There's something about the cross that ushers in this whole new way of relating to God. And the Old Testament had prophesied when the new covenant comes. Jeremiah 31 tells us what we could expect when the new covenant comes. The days are coming, declares the Lord, says Jeremiah 31, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like, it will not be like, not only is it not the old covenant, it's not like the old covenant. The new covenant is not just a new covenant, it's a new kind of covenant. It's not even like the old covenant. It's not that like we got rid of 613 laws and got a new set of 613 laws. The actual nature of the covenant is different. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And then Ezekiel 36 says about the coming of the new covenant. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. In the new covenant, it's not just new stuff that's put in place. We're the new stuff. Right? right? We got a, what does it say here? It says a new heart, a new spirit, and God's spirit. A new heart, a new spirit, and God's spirit. Say those three things with me. A new heart, a new spirit, and God's spirit. Our hearts made new, our spirits made new, and God's spirit comes and dwells within each one of us, uniting us, pulling us together into one body. This is beautiful. It's a completely transformational way, then, of relating to God. Do you see the movie Forrest Gump? That goes back a ways. For those of you who are a little less zombie movie oriented, all right, this one then is more for you. There's this scene in Forrest Gump where, you know the scene, it's the scene that's become iconic even if you've never seen the movie, where Jenny is heard to be shouting out, run, Forrest, run! Because guys are picking on him and he has to get away, but Forrest has these braces on that he needed because he had trouble walking when he was younger, so he needed these braces, and they helped him, they helped him, they helped him until his muscles got so healthy, he didn't need the braces anymore. He changed, the braces did what they did for a time, but then when he changed and got healthy, the braces were not helping anymore, the very thing that did help him were now holding him back. So there's this beautiful scene that illustrates it when Jenny's shouting, run, Forrest, run, and he runs. And as he starts to run, the braces start to break off. And we find out that he actually can move faster without the braces until finally we realize this guy has got speed. He can move, he's, he's transformed. And if he were to actually go back to the braces again, 
that would hold him back from becoming the person that he could now be. And so Hebrews 8.13, <laughs> powerful verse in the Bible, Hebrews 8.13 says, by calling this covenant new, it's talking about the new covenant, Hebrews 8, 9, 10, all about the new covenant. And then it pauses for a second and says, you know, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one, what? Obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Hold on, here you have one part of the Bible calling another part of the Bible obsolete, outdated, Ray, just disappear. So what do we do? We throw out the Old Testament? No, because the Old Testament is the shadow of Jesus, as Greg was teaching earlier, always pointing to Jesus, a signpost. We can learn a lot about Jesus once we, once we fully understand who Jesus is. Now we can go back into the Old Covenant and we can start to learn Jesus stuff, even there. But as law to govern us from the outside in, to strap us down, to minimize the damage, it's obsolete. That's the Bible's word. Because 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. It's so good. And we are free then not only from our sins, but from the law. And Jesus died on the cross not only for our sins, but for our religion for our system of rules, regulations, rituals, and routines, rules, regulations, rituals, and routines that we perform in order to get right with God. No, we're free now. Free from this. There was this um, psychologist named Abraham Maslow. Some of you would have studied him if you took first-year psych at university. Uh, developmental psychology, uh, Abraham Maslow. Uh, well, he, he taught in the area of ethics and human need and one of the things he's known for is developing uh, his hierarchy of needs, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And he said that every human being progresses through these different stages of need. I mean, the very first thing we need are physiological needs met, like water and, and food. Um, you can't think about self-esteem issues if you're dying of thirst. So the first thing you need is just the basic elements of life, yes. But once those things are met, then you have safety needs. You also can't ask questions about your purpose in life if you're being chased by a tiger. You have to first deal with the issue that's threatening you. And so we need some sense of safety and security. And then as he progresses, he talks about things like our need for belonging and esteem. Maslow only hinted at purpose but didn't put it in his, in his initial paradigm, but other psychologists have talked about adding this, so I've put it in here, esteem, purpose. And then he has these, these interesting things at the top of his pyramid, one of them being self-actualization. Self-actualization, said Maslow, is when you finally become the person you know you were meant to be. You're not just self-potentialized, you're self-actualized. You become actually you, not just potentially you. You know how some people will say, I just feel like I was made to fill in the blank. You're not doing it yet, but you can tell. It feels like a destiny, like a calling, like the, it's just, it's in you. I, I feel like I was made to play the violin. I just need to, and you start working at it. You're not a violinist yet, but you're working at it. And then one day, it's not just a matter of doing scales. You're playing the violin, and as you get to the point where this is, this is freedom for you to play the violin, it's not work. You have not just become a potential violinist. You become an actual violinist, and you are self-actualized. You become the person you felt you were supposed to be. And he says, not everyone in life will achieve self-actualization. Some people will go through life, and they will have a sense, they have a calling, but they'll never step out and they'll never achieve that. But the beautiful thing is that he says, this is a human need and until you achieve self-actualization, you may grow old and you may die, but with a sense of, I, there was something more I was supposed to be and I didn't, I didn't get there and that need will haunt you until your death, until you know what it is. But the beautiful thing about the gospel is that the new covenant, the good news of the new covenant brings about our self-actualization by faith. Because under the new covenant, we become, we all have an opportunity to become the people we were made to be, which is a people made in the image of God, free to make loving choices like God in the way we're supposed to be, lovers like God, not judges like God, who are free to be in partnership with his spirit to make those loving choices every day we wake up. We have the opportunity to fully become what humanity was designed to be. You see, uh, while you're just obeying rules, 
according to the old covenant, you're not being the full human you were made to be. You're like a little kid, says the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter three. You're not growing up. You're in an infantile state if it's just obeying rules and doing the routines that you're told to do. But when you finally get to the point with God's grace to be able to say, I'm making a choice, the choice to love. I could choose otherwise, but this is what I choose. Now you're being the human made in the image of God, fully self-actualized. The gospel brings about the answer to this fundamental human need of self-actualization. I was... Um, Maybe I can illustrate it this way, and then we'll move on to the last point of, uh, of our time together. The, I, I was driving on the Autobahn years ago when our family took a vacation in Germany. You know the Autobahn. It's famous for one thing. Speed. Or the absence of a speed limit. That's right, which equals speed. So we were driving on the Autobahn. I had, um, we, <laughs> and... And it was, it was the first time I had this New Covenant experience when it comes to driving because when I drive, I drive Old Covenant. What does that mean? It means there's a law that says you cannot go faster than this, which means I respond by saying, how much faster can I go beyond the law before I get pulled over? Because that's how the law interacts with the flesh. Isn't it true? The Apostle Paul talks about this. It exacerbates the problem. When you stand in an elevator and you get in the elevator, you push your, your button and you look over and you notice a sign that says, wet paint, do not touch. And you got five floors between now and where you, what do you do? You look around and you touch. And either way, you feel justified. If it is wet, you go, yep, it was right. And if, and if it's dry, you feel superior, like, huh, I know more than the sign does. <laughs> Outdated sign. Not wet anymore. But, but once you're told, whatever you do, don't do that. That's what you want to do. And so uh, when I drive, it says speed limit's 100. I think, how far beyond 100 can I get away with? I'm on the Autobahn, and I had a chance to drive New Covenant. Here's what it says. Drive as fast as you think you can in a safe fashion. But there's no speed limit. There's no law. Hopefully, there's just... Uh, Love. What do I mean by that? Hopefully you're going to be other-centered enough and care about yourself and the other passengers in your car and the other cars that you'll make a decision based on care, compassion, and wisdom rather than just trying to cheat the law. And if, if I wasn't able to get there on my own, own my, my wife helped me. So I get in the car and I'm ready to cruise and I'm starting to get the speed up there and it's good. All right, it was a family camper, which kind of dampened the experience a little bit. Oh, man. <laughs> what are we going to rent, honey? We need a family camper. No. So, but I'm seeing how fast I can get this baby. And she just leans over and she says, just remember that you love your family. Because <laughs> I say, how fast do you think I can go? She says, you go as fast as you want. Just remember you love your family. And for the first time in my life, I think this is the first time, the only time in my life, I actually drove saying, what would be a, a safe and loving speed for my family so that I know I feel that I'm taking good care of them in choosing the appropriate speed on this highway? That's not usually what's going through my mind. It's usually, how fast can I go? Are there any police along here? Uh, how well can I? Other, that other car ahead of me is going a little faster, so he'll, he'll clear the way, and I can get behind him. And I got thinking all these thoughts. I was driving down the highway thinking, how can I love my family based on this? I think, wow, this is New Covenant. The New Covenant says, I'm not going to tell you what to do. Here's your job. Wake up every morning, remind yourself of who you are in Christ, and then go be yourself. Wake up every morning, remind yourself of who you are in Christ, and then just go be yourself. And you were made to be a loving person. You were made to be like God as someone who loves. This is the end of religion, the, the rest that it provides, the self-actualization. And then lastly, I said the gospel is Jesus is God with us, come to show us God's love, save us from sin, set up God's kingdom, shut down religion so we can share in God's life. Let me say a few words about this last point. I would call this last line, sharing God's life, uh, 
something, well, it's something that points to hope. You know, there, hope is such an honest concept. Because um, hope, hope admits that things are not the way they should be right now. Isn't it honest? Uh, it, it admits, first of all, things are not the way they should be, but there's an opportunity for them to get right. There's an opportunity for them to get better. And people long for hope. For, first of all, just the honesty and the authenticity to come to church and it be a place where I don't have to pretend, where I can say I need hope because this is the place where I get to admit things are not good right now. I'm going through a very hard time. And that's so strange because within our culture, we have ways of not being honest. And sometimes in the church, we can buy into that and we become products of culture instead of products of Christ. But, but we need to reject that, that, that culturally normative, hey, how are you? Which isn't an honest question. It's, that just means hi in our culture. But then we respond with an equally disingenuous, hey, how are you? And we respond with the dreaded F word. What's that? Fine, great. And we just say things as, as we're passing by that we don't, and, and we say things like, hey, we got to get together sometime. It'd be great to get together. What does that mean? That means go away. I hope I never see you again. That's what it, right? No. Oh, no. <laughs> you want to remind the person you invited to get together that you actually meant it. That's good. That's good. I appreciate it. Because in the church, we're countercultural. But sometimes, especially people from other cultures will come here and remind us, I had 10 people say they wanted to get together with me, but then they forgot to get my phone number. <laughs> and they didn't ask how to reach me, and they didn't actually take out a pencil and pay. And I would talk to people of other cultures, and they help hold up a mirror and say, part of your Canadian culture is that you're so nice, you just say stuff to make the moment smooth. And as long as the moment is smooth, and we're stewarding, as Canadians, we're stewarding smooth moments that have no jagged edges, and then we can move on. And it's lovely when people from other cultures are able to just hold up that mirror and say, I mean, that, that may be a nice goal, but you, at what cost? At what cost? So here, the church is a place where we can say, I need hope because my life is a mess. I can be honest, but I believe there's something better for me. And I think that's, that's what I would call the goal of the gospel, the goal of the gospel, and our hope of this goal of the gospel, where it's all headed. Our hope is that we can eventually experience what is now true in part, and that is our full union with God, our full, our full, our full intimacy with God. Let me, let me read some, some verses uh, to you. Uh, Colossians Three, three. No, we're going to skip that, and we're going to skip. No, let's skip that. Let's go to, hmm, Second Peter, Second Peter one. I, I read Second Peter earlier in our Q and A in our last session. I said I was going to come back to it. Let's come back to Second Peter one, verses three and four. Says this: His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's given it to us and invited our partnership so that through them you may become, what's that phrase? Partakers of the divine nature. Wow, full participants with the essence of God. Fellowshippers with God's love life. How beautiful. Partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of Desire. Some translations will say evil desire. The word evil is not there in the original. It's just always saying, I got to have more, I got to have more, I got to have more, instead of finding our satisfaction in God, is the thing that can often keep us from experience intimacy with the Almighty. But eventually we are moving toward becoming partakers of the divine nature. Jesus said in John 14, on that day, on that day you will realize that I am in my Father and what? You are in me, and I am in you. How intimate is that? We don't just have Jesus in us. We are brought into the life of Jesus, and Jesus is in the Father. We're being pulled by Jesus into this intimacy with God. Uh, he says a little bit later, John 17, I have made you known to them. This is now when he's praying to the Father. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them. 
that I myself may be in them. All these different ways of describing the intimacy that we are moving toward. We have Jesus in us, but we are pulled into Jesus. Jesus pulls us into himself and then into the Father. And then the love even that passes between the Father and the Son is now passing through us. He loves us directly, but the Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. And the love that they have for one another is now something that's in us as well. And we're inside of that. And we're experiencing their love even for one another. The triune love that passes between them. We're invited into that family relationship of the Trinity. We never become God, but we're invited to the table with God to have this kind of fellowship. There, there, there was a time in my life where this became very real for me. I went through, I think was, was the most uh, painful thing that I've ever experienced and I, um, I just imploded. I, 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 I became un, uh, unfunctional, dysfunctional. I couldn't do anything except cry and I cried every day for a long, a long time. And it wasn't just simple sobs. It was heaving, kind of half screaming, crying. And I, I actually got to the point where I was afraid that I might be frightening the neighbors. So I, I said, I'm going to have to figure out a solution. So I would get in my car. This became my routine to get in my car and drive just kind of outside of the city bounds into a country road. And I'd get into a road where there was no traffic. And then I would, I would, there, I would drive there calmly. And then I would just get out of the car, I'd walk around to the back seat and I'd get back in the car in the back seat and I would lie down and I'd curl up in fetal position and just start to, to heave and to sob, to cry and just let it all out until I was kind of like done for the day and then I'd get back in the front seat and drive home and repeat it again. And I, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't really, uh, I couldn't function. And, and so I, I, I made a new friend uh, during that season. His name is Greg. And Greg actually is here tonight. He's, where's Greg? Greg's sitting in the back row over there. And he loves it when I point him out and really make everyone look at him. Uh, and so my friend Greg, he, uh, you know, he hung out with me. But even as he would hang out with me in order to kind of pour love and encouragement and hope into me, I was so broken I couldn't receive it. Do you know what that's like when you are in that really dark place and someone sits down with you and says, it's going to be okay and you, can, and, and you can't even muster up the energy to receive the message. Uh, and so Greg said, why don't you just come and hang out with me and my family? And Greg and his couple of kids and his wife, I, he, they started inviting us over to their home. And, and so I would spend many days just having dinner with them at their house. And, and what I noticed is even though I didn't have the energy to personally, even if someone were to pour pure love and encouragement into my soul, I didn't have the energy to receive it. When I would sit there at the dining room table and they would chat back and forth, they'd say, just give Bruxy a space. And they'd chat back and forth and they'd laugh and they'd tell stories and I'd sense their love passing around the table. It's like it would pass through me. And while I wasn't strong enough to receive their love for me, I was starting to get indirectly nourished by their love for one another. Yeah? Just being in a loving home and in a loving environment, I was starting to heal. Yeah, and someone would come down and say, Bruxy, I just want to tell you it's going to be okay. And I'd say, ah, I can't take it. But when they would turn their attentions to one another and I'd be invited into this loving home, it was like I was in an incubator of agape where the love that they had for one another was just passing through me and beginning to do its healing work. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about here, where we're not only in Christ who is in the Father, but even the love that the Father and the Son share back and forth begins to heal us and make us whole and make us well. That's the goal of the gospel. The Apostle John says in Revelation 21, he says, when I had this vision of heaven, I looked around heaven. He says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. First, two things here. First of all, he didn't see a temple. That's a very irreligious thing for a Jewish man to say. 
I'm telling, he's talking about a time where there is just no temple, no place you go to to meet with God. And then what he adds onto that is beautifully intimate. I did not see a temple because the Lord and the Lamb are God himself. What's a temple? A temple is the thing you go into to be in God's presence or to meet with God. He says God himself will be God's own temple and we will be in God, meeting with God. Our intimacy with God will happen folded up into the person of who God is. And, and this, finally, as I work through this, it makes sense of something for me, and that's the ascension. The ascension never made sense for me as a kid. I don't know about me, you got it all figured out, but I didn't have it all figured out. I, this, first of all, it happens at a funny time. It's the last thing Jesus says, but according to Matthew's gospel, the last thing Jesus says, you know, I, I'm all authority of heaven and earth has been given to me, go make disciples all nations, baptize, teaching them to obey everything, and lo, I am with you always, even to the very ends of the age. I, I'm with you always, I'll never leave you. Okay, bye. And then he goes. <laughs> And then he's gone. That's when the ascension happens. I'm never going to leave you. See ya. And then he, t and I thought, well, if he t but which way's up? Because depending on the planetary rotation, is that up or is that down or is it, where is it going? And, and why does he take his body with him? Why doesn't he go back into eternal spirit? Because he, he became human, right? And at the resurrection, he maintained his humanity. He becomes a prototype of what we will all experience. He resurrects, but he's got a new body. Still, he maintains his scars, but it's a new body. He can walk through walls, but he can still eat. He's physical enough to eat, praise Jesus. Right? But he's, he's, there's something new going on here. He's a redeemed, glorified body, but he is the human experience, what we can look forward to, what, what all creation can look forward to. Because he didn't shed his body and go back to being the pre-incarnate. Son of God. He didn't go backwards. He went forwards. Because on Easter Sunday morning, the tomb was empty. It could have been, his body could have been there and his spirit hovering and saying, I have always been an eternal spirit and I'm going back to the Father to be exactly that. No, he took his body with him, his changed body. He came down and bonded with our humanity. Then at the ascension, he takes our humanity back with him up to be with the Father. The ascension tells us that God has made room in his heart for us. And that is where we're headed to. That humanity and divinity are compatible. We can get along. We can have rich fellowship. The incarnation shows, uh, in the incarnation, God shows his heart to us. But in the ascension, God brings our humanity into his heart. He brings us close. So, we've worked our way through the gospel in 30 words. We've talked about it all, and, and, touched on a few different ways that we can both receive this good news afresh, but also communicate it with other people. I wanna, I wanna close just by inviting us, not to think about how we'll communicate the gospel to someone else and how we'll pass it on, but just to say, how am I doing? And to just sit for a moment in that beautiful love, that intimacy of God. <laughs> it is it's such a strange thing that the one who is omnipresent would give up his omnipresence to become present in one person at one point in history, at one time, to become flesh, to become our weakest selves, to allow us to reject him, then rise again, and yet hold on to that humanity and take that with him back up into the heart of the Father. He's gone to such great lengths to show us his love and then to pull us close so that we can share in his love life. So I want to give us a few moments just to meditate before we close tonight to to ask ourselves if we have really allowed this to sink in. And maybe we'll just give us a couple of minutes to invite God to speak to us. I, uh, to prime the pump, to kind of encourage us, to give us a focus. Uh, I, I'm gonna use one more illustration. You know, like Greg, I love to borrow my illustrations from movies, songs, other things. I like the fact that when Jesus had sermon illustrations or parables, they were, they were made up. 
That's so creative. Did you ever notice that? As a pastor, I always thought my sermon illustrations had to be actual stories, but Jesus never did that. He never said, you know what the kingdom of heaven of God is like? It's kind of like what happened to Peter, James, and John and I when we went to the market last week and we had a conversation. No. He would say, the kingdom of heaven is like, and they'd tell this story that was creative and artistic. And so I love using art. I can't do that, but I can pull from movies and other things. And there's a movie that came out this year that really... um, captured this for me. We have a picture of, of the family here. Do you know what movie that's from? That's from a movie called A Quiet Place. I don't know if you, you saw it or you've heard of it. It's really the family feel-good movie of 2018 <laughs> with monsters. Uh, but we'll ignore the monsters for a moment. In this family film, which means it's not a film for your family, it's just about a family, In this family film, one of the relationships that is highlighted is the relationship between the father and his older daughter. This relationship is fascinating. Something happens early in the film for which the daughter blames herself. She has a sense of her own failure, and she assumes that her father is holding it against her as well. And as she projects that on her father, she creates the distance. There's no way that he loves me anymore. There's no way after what I've done, we could, we could have the friendship I'd always hoped for. He loves my brother. He loves it, but not me. When they fight, they argue. They rarely, rarely connect. And she is interpreting her entire life through the lens of her own failure, creating what she projects to be a Appointment, disappointment in her father. There's a, a climactic scene in the movie where the father says, I love you to her. Uh, but he says it in sign language because she's deaf. That's another important element of the, of the movie. And, and his daughter is not only deaf, and so the whole family speaks sign language, but the actress who plays the daughter is deaf. And so it has a real ring of authenticity. And there's this moment where the father says... Which means, I love you. And as the story goes behind the scenes, that actress talked to the director and said, I don't think that's enough. Because I love you says something about the present moment, but my character has months, if not years, of processing that she has to go back and undo. My dad would have to say more to me to really help it sink in. And the director thankfully listened to her wisdom. They rewrote the scene, and that's how it appears in the movie. In the movie, the father doesn't just say, I love you. He says that, and then he goes on to say, I have always loved you. And it rewrites her own history. It changes everything. It's not just about where we go from here moving forward. It's about rethinking everything she has already experienced. And I think it would be good for us as we close for a moment to think, is there anything in our lives that shame us? Is there a moment of failure? Is there something that we have done that causes us to project onto God a sense of disappointment with us that keeps us at a distance where we need to hear God say, not just I love you through the cross, but I have always loved you. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, something we read before we read in our first session, and I'll read it again here in a different translation. Even before he made the world, God loved us. He loved the bride of Christ. He chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure.
I'm going to give us just a minute of silence. Think about your failure. If you want to really push this, think about the most shame-filled thing you've ever done, that thing you press down into your subconscious because if you think about it, that makes it real and you don't want it to be real. And then hear God not only say, I love you, but I have always loved you. Even when you were so far from me, I wasn't far from you. Allow yourself to admit the shame you've been carrying and receive his ongoing eternal love. We'll take a minute of quiet for God's spirit to speak to you and then I'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, our dad, I pray we hear your voice. We see you signed to us through the cross. The cross that was not a new idea but an old idea because you've always loved us. I pray that we would no longer believe the lie that anything we do or any failure we're a part of drives you away. I pray we would no longer fall prey to the enemy's manipulation who would want to use our guilt and shame to accuse us and make us cower in the corner. I pray that we might run to our Papa. We might run into your arms and receive the love that has always been there for us. May we hear your voice saying, I love you, I have always loved you. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for taking these truths that Jesus teaches and models and making them real in our heart. May we be a people together at Impact Church and the Meeting House and with other churches. May we be a people who live in this reality and then joyfully share it with others. In your name I pray, amen. Amen. amen.